0: Friends
1: and neighbors, you're listening to Portland from the Left. My name is Josh, and I use he, him pronouns.
0: My name is Piper, and I use she, her pronouns. And today, we're talking to our friend Thursday about money and politics in Portland and the state.
2: My name is Thursday. I use she and they pronouns. I write about local politics over at pdx.vote And... I just follow everything that kind of crosses my interest.
1: And this is the second part of our two-part series on campaign finance in Portland and Multnomah County in Oregon. Um, so we're going to just jump into a conversation we were having about media bias when it comes to covering political campaigns. If you want to hear the first part of this conversation, it should be available in the previous episode in your feed. Media outlets reporting on this, at least in Portland, um, a handful of them are also members of Portland Business Alliance. Mm -hmm. And and while that doesn't necessarily mean they are directly impacting the PAC's decisions or whatever, I don't, you know, I don't know the internal um, mechanisms for making those decisions and stuff. Clearly, there's um, there's incentive to paint those contributions or that activity in a positive light. Um, even in the best case scenario, with you know great reporters and people really working hard, I think you know I'm sure that there are moments where things get edited or where pieces don't end up getting published um, because of the nature of things. You know, uh, because of those relationships.
2: And and there are even more relationships than just that too. Like the the editor in chief of the Oregonian is Therese Bottomley, Leslie Bottomley, who is running for re-election. As a judge in Multnomah County, is a sibling to the the bottomley at the Oregonians. So, like, <laughs> I don't know anything about either of their personal politics, but you have to kind of assume that if you're running a newspaper and your sibling is a judge, that like your opinion of. Things happening in the judicial system will at least a little bit be colored by, you know, what you hear at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I I don't think that there's a way to avoid it. And that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. a conflict of interest, but it is something that, you know, maybe we should be talking about in as much as we're talking about the relationships between, you know, all of these other uh, folks who are either candidates or working at PACS or all these other factors.
0: I told Josh the other day when I read The Oregonian, I think about um, Therese Bottomley sitting in the Arlington Club the next day after it's published. (laughs) So I'm thinking about like, what would that do to your headline if you're going to go have lunch there (laughs) the next day? It's just a frame I use to filter everything.
2: I also find it really interesting what articles the Oregonian chooses to put behind a paywall versus which ones they release for free so like they're pretty good about making a lot of sports coverage available to everybody (laughs) they're less great about like making their coverage of the state legislature session available to everybody And, like, the argument is, what are people going to pay for? What can they use to upsell people to a subscription? That sort of thing. And, sure, that is a reasonable concern for a business, but... I'm not going to buy the argument that
0: people will pay for legislator coverage and not sports. I'm just not (laughs) going to buy
2: that. (laughs) I mean, I haven't had a chance to look at the Oregonians' books,
1: but... (laughs) Uh, Just to mention it, um, we'll link to, I have a little uh, JavaScript uh, code thing that can get you past the paywall for the Oregonian, and we'll link to that um, (laughs) in some instructions on how to install that. Uh, Because we believe paywalls on news outlets are fundamentally evil. Like, it's actually class war to do that, so we're going to fight that. Um, Yeah, I'm hoping at some point they break it so I can make another one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I will say, you know... The Oregonian aside, I do find value in paying money for uh, my news, but like I find value in paying like Reveal, which is a nonprofit, which is very transparent Mm -hmm. about how they use funds. I feel really Mm -hmm. good about subscribing to like High Country News, which covers Indigenous issues, which a lot of our uh, local outlets never cover, even though it's very relevant to what's going on here. So I'm not, personally at least, I'm not against supporting my favorite news outlets. I, I just want to be thoughtful about how I spend my money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know,
0: there are different models, too. Like, I think about OPB has a member model, um, which doesn't limit access to coverage for anybody. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a way to do it where you're still paying for news, but you're not actually holding news back from people who can't afford to pay for it.
1: Right, exactly. I think funding sources are really important. So um, we're a great example, right? This podcast, um, it's very cheap to produce, and we can just kind of do it out of our own pockets. um, And that enables us to not worry about growth, not worry about um, who cares what we say or whatever. We can just deliver the information as transparently and as clearly as we can, um, and talk about the issues that we think are important without kind of outside factors weighing in on that and like you know other people can have different incentives. that's cool i actually uh dearly wish that some of the best reporters in town would band together and start a patreon they could probably make more money than they're making right now and they almost certainly could write uh better stuff or more you know broad stuff maybe my anger at the Oregonian is because they're the um, primary news source in town with the most resources.
0: I mean, we just literally did an episode about how bad we think the Oregonian is. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of reasons we hate the Oregonian.
1: Because we just um, talked about high country news. I wanted to mention you have in this document Thursday that the um, I believe the tribal elections aren't like.
2: Yeah, they're not under the secretary of state's uh, oversight.
1: Mm-hmm. There you go.
2: Um, Yeah, so every every tribe recognized by the federal government, which is not all of them, Mm -hmm. has the sovereignty to organize and handle their own elections, including in terms of donations, which is good. Like, don't get me wrong. My pause is not about the question of indigenous sovereignty. My pause is about the fact that some of these tribal elections have less resources to do sort of the checking on or uh, requesting information about how money is being used. So there have been situations. um, One of them that's kind of been going on, uh, there's a area in Nevada called the Winnemucca Indian Colony, which is pretty close to the the border, um, where the tribal council is uh, doing things that members of the tribe don't agree with, because they were able to essentially be elected without a significant portion of the tribe agreeing to it. Mm-hmm. And like, I I want to follow all the elections, right? So right now, um, Warm Springs, which is here in Oregon. Um, the tribe, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs are in the process of doing a tribal election, um, which election day is March 30th. So probably after, uh, probably before this episode comes out, but after a recording.
0: So we've been talking about all these issues with campaign finance, and we did talk about, um, Shamia Fagan's office not permitting these ballot measures, on the ballot this session because they would need to get more signatures um should we talk about maybe what those would do like what was the intent um of those measures so that we can better understand like what could be next or what are some of the fixes that people are already trying to work on
2: yeah we can definitely talk about fixes a little bit so the the three ballot measures that honest elections oregon um put together are all kind of the same um, just some of the details are slightly different. They all have uh, donor caps, they all have stricter rules for PAC contributions. Um, there's, you know, a bunch of different, uh, pretty standard responses that that we see. Um, so because Oregon doesn't have Any rules, having those uh, caps that aren't just at a city by city level would be obviously a big fix um, Mm -hmm. for all different kinds of contributors. And those uh, caps are in, for the most part, are in the three ballot measures that are still in the running that um, various unions have put forth.
0: Um, Gotcha. So the alternate versions. That weren't struck down by Shamia Fagan's office yet.
2: Right. But could be. (laughs) So those uh, measures do allow larger contributions from certain kinds of organizations than the Virgin's Honest Elections put forth. Ah. Specifically, unions. So these three ballot measures that are still in the running— Um, two of them were put forth by, uh, United Food and Commercial Workers, which, you know, is the union that Michael Salvaggio represents. And then one was put forth by AFSCME, which is the union for public employees. So folks who work at city of Portland, folks who work for the legislature, um, various government agencies, some school district employees, All belong to that. Gotcha. Um, So yeah. So the big difference is around the constraints that these bills would or these measures would put on unions for donating,
0: which is something I'm very interested in because one of the kinds of unions that exists are police unions. Right. That's unfortunate.
2: It it really is because I mean I hate to be you know a one issue voter or anything like that. But I do feel that the police union in Portland has such an outsized impact on every single thing that happens here from elections to, well, how homelessness is handled, how decriminalization of anything is handled, all of these different factors, um, that I am kind of a one-issue voter in terms of... Limiting the power of the Portland Police Association.
1: One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is like disclosure requirements. Um, recently, somebody DM me and asked if I was press. And after thinking about it for a while, I told them no, but it's a good question. Um, I, I, I personally feel more like a propagandist or someone who is attempting to convince people of things. Um, yeah, so I'm really curious about the different disclosure requirements for these political consultants.
2: So I'm going to I'm going to break this down into a couple of pieces. And I'm going to say, first, uh, by legal definitions, if you are not a journalist, and you're talking about things in a way that is intended to get politicians to change what they're doing, which arguably a podcast could be construed as such, you would legally be considered a lobbyist, and therefore required to follow lobbyist rules. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. From a legal perspective, I think it's very important that you define yourself as a journalist. (laughs) But of course, I am not a lawyer.
1: (laughs) Uh, I I have somebody I can check in with. That That's a good point.
2: No, we're we're entertainers. Sure. Comedians are (laughs) exempt from a lot of things entertainers are to a certain extent. But let's let's focus more on the, the people who are acting as lobbyists as like a profession. Right. So once again, different rules, different levels. Uh, We've got uh, state-level rules, we've got city-level rules. For our purposes, city-level rules are probably going to be the most important. Um, And most of that is around reporting financial transactions. Uh, There's very little that's necessarily about you know, who's involved? It's about what money is being spent where. A lobbyist is required to report the money that they're spending on lobbying. Um, they're required to report certain kinds of interactions with um, elected officials, mm-hmm. a lot of which involve, again, money. Um, elected officials are also required to report um, when they receive gifts of $25 or more. Um, meals fall under that that sort of thing um so there's there are expectations, but it's all about reporting, and all of the violations are about reporting
1: mm-hmm.
2: so mm. the the things that a lobbyist can do wrong are not file their reports or give a gift that is of an incorrect amount. That's kind of it. Then, then you know, they get their, their fine of $450 that they pay. <laughs> Maximum. Very way. So <laughs> there aren't that many requirements about things like, where is the money for that gift coming from? Um, there's not a lot of requirements around you know, who might have donated to a 501c4 that happens to be engaged in lobbying. Once again, partially because that's not what a 501c4 is supposed to be doing with their funds and time. For the ballot measure um, that People for Portland is proposing in their press release, they did say that they would establish a PAC to work on it. And that PAC would then be required to report on where funds are coming from into the PAC's accounts. But mm. if, say, People for Portland, the 501c4, makes a donation to People for Portland, the PAC. They have to say, oh, this money came from this nonprofit. They don't have to say where the nonprofit got their money from.
0: Everything's really about whether they reported the money Mm -hmm. or gave gifts the right amount, Um, but not as much about like campaigning. So I'm thinking about like, you know, when there's ads out for a a candidate, it has to say something like paid for by blah, 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 blah. But if you're just a lobbyist and you're just like creating content and you're like, hey, vote for this person, donate to them. Do you have to state your relationship?
2: (laughs) It's complicated by the fact that that's not what the state considers to be lobbying work. Mm. So the state kind of considers lobbying and campaigning to be two completely unconnected things Ah. that should be tracked separately. Also that should be managed separately. So for instance, A report on lobbying from the city auditor's office doesn't correlate that information with a report on what those same organizations did campaign wise. As a for instance, if a local organization, a local nonprofit gives money to a candidate, that's disclosed, you know, through their campaign uh, reporting to ORSTAR. And then if that same organization uh, lobbies that person after they've been elected, that's reported through the lobbying reporting system, Mm -hmm. say, at the city auditor's office. And then if there's a violation, that's reported from the city auditor's office, but on a different page. (laughs) So (laughs) I have some feelings you know, when I'm doing my research that maybe this is not an effective way to manage any of this information, mm-hmm. but changing the system is going to take more than just passing a law as well. So like we've got, you know, these ballot measures that we're considering. There have also been um, some efforts in the state legislature to pass bills there that would do similar things. Um, In the 2022 short session, there were two bills, actually, that suggested public finance options for Oregon candidates. All that, you know, would make campaigning more accessible, all that sort of good stuff that theoretically makes everything more transparent. From a purely mechanical perspective, Updating uh, ORSTAR to allow those sorts of things, updating the um, city reporting systems as well, is not a trivial undertaking. Um, it took two years to build ORSTAR. It uh, The state legislature passed a bill saying that, you know, we're saying side budget, here are the, what we expect the system to do, everything like that, in 2005 it was 2007 before the system was actually up and running. And that's the system we're still using now, even though technology has changed pretty, pretty Mm -hmm. thoroughly in the last Mm -hmm. 17 odd years.
0: I think about the fact that just, you know, it's sort of like how I was saying before, it's like, even if technically the information is transparent and reported somewhere, which often it's not, and people violate it, but even if it was, if it's that inaccessible, there's a lot of just like hand-waving and marketing going on that's what most people are going to encounter. They're not actually going to be able to open up these three systems and look up the different versions of like, okay, they gave the money here and they got it from here and they did the campaigning here and they did the violation here and like be able to put it all together.
2: Exactly.
0: So it's, it's effectively hidden
2: through complexity, I guess, that would be the way I think about it. Yeah, through complexity and through a lack of access to the right technology, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: you can't even have two tabs open in your browser that are both showing you Orstar reports. Orstar will just lose its little database uh, way <laughs> and freeze one of them and say, "This, this you cannot have. So if you're trying to compare two different sets of information, it's always better to just download it off of star and work with it yourself. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned violations, and that's, you know, in theory, we have the system to make it easier to find violations. Well, given that most violations that we currently find are around people not reporting things, all this system gives us basically is if somebody has reported something at a particular time. We don't have filing deadlines in Oregon, so the Secretary of State is judging violations on an absence of information. Oh. Now, there are, you know, errors as violations as well, like a transaction is recorded, just not recorded properly. The Secretary of State has 10 days from the time they get that information to decide whether it's erroneous um, and to pursue a violation. Otherwise. You know, it's a complaint-driven system. So a donor can complain, another candidate can complain, that sort of thing. And that can prompt an investigation. But the Secretary of State still kind of gets to decide which complaints to investigate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, you know, it goes over to the Attorney General to decide whether to prosecute some of these things. Then it goes to the Supreme Court or... Whatever court has uh, jurisdiction to actually, you know, go through the legal process of dealing with one of these violations. And at each step, we're talking about people who are elected using the same system.
1: Mm-hmm. So <laughs> mm-hmm. the
2: incentives to change anything about this system are pretty small.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And even when somebody gets into the system who might have other incentives, it's pretty tough to get elected, stay in office, do that work. Mm -hmm. So one thing that came out of the state legislative session that ended it earlier in March is that there was a bill on raising legislator pay. So right now, a state senator or state representative makes a little over $30,000 a year in the state of Oregon. That's extremely low when compared to other states. So there was a bill that would have raised it essentially to match like the poverty line in Oregon was the goal. Maybe a stipend for child care for, for uh, <laughs> if you want to be real nice to those state legislators, but it didn't pass. It didn't go anywhere. And three state legislators stood up at the end of the session and said, hey, none of us are running for re-election because we can't afford to be state legislators. They're all women. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think all three of them have uh, families that they've needed to hire help to take care of while they're doing this legislative job. Um, Most state legislators either have a full-time job besides being a state legislator Or they have some other source of funds to live on. Mm -hmm. Now that other source of funds is either going to be inherited wealth or their campaign money. So like the incentive to not change their pay and to not change the uh, system of campaign finance here are the same. Mm -hmm. So... If somebody is getting more money from their campaign, essentially from their fundraising, than they would from, you know, their salary, why would they even care about the salary? <laughs> and why would they want to limit the
0: campaign funds?
2: Exactly.
1: This is this particular case is really interesting, especially in Oregon, where you know, as we've been talking about, uh, there's very little state level um, or almost no state level. Campaign finance rules as far as limits and things and and how big those buckets of money can get, you know i, I know myself that I have been um, at very, very different income levels, and I know that like the way I think about things, um the decisions I made, you know all that kind of stuff really changes based on uh where you're at and and what resources you have. I think everybody's familiar with this um, with their personal budgets um so hearing about uh legislators pay. Um, I think sometimes for me it's like, oh, fuck them, they don't need money, whatever. But the reality is if if we want people from various um income backgrounds, if we want poor folks in office, et cetera, they they need an income to pay their bills and, and pay rent and stuff. Um, it's not it's and it's not acceptable to require work from somebody and not pay them. So yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that like uh While I don't necessarily love giving politicians more money, I recognize that paying people for work is good, and also that um the the very very real limitations as we're seeing here um for for people just uh, well even middle class people um to to be able to do this work while having a family while being younger mm. um you know we have a lot of very very old politicians um well everywhere right. Um, Mm -hmm. so while it doesn't feel important to me, I know like logically it is important. So I'm accepting that and trying to turn that into an emotion.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot about how most people i know that work in the nonprofit space um who are oftentimes working on social justice issues well maybe not most of them but there's a large number of people in leadership roles in those spaces who actually didn't need a high income like nonprofits often pay less than for-profit field and so the people that end up taking those jobs oftentimes have a wealthy spouse or they have family mm-hmm. money and so you end up with people making decisions about social justice who skew away from the community that they're supposedly serving. And that's a similar thing. If for instance, I could either work a full-time job or be in the legislature, I couldn't pay my mortgage on $30,000 a year. So I wouldn't be in that position. But if I had like say, I don't know, like a judge as a husband or something like that, or family money, I could. So it shapes who can enter in any Mm -hmm. of these spaces where there's not just like a living wage sort of a level. it, It shapes who takes it and then therefore who has power over those issues. So... I I think it happens in a lot of spaces, not just in, not just in politics. And when we think about like, like journalism is another example,
1: it Mm -hmm. oftentimes
0: starts out with, um, unpaid internships. And so if you are someone that comes out of college without money, you cannot enter that field through that path. Um, so it's a closed door because it doesn't pay. Some people don't need to be paid. Because they don't need money, because they have it already.
1: And I think it's been a conversation that's been kind of in the air a lot the last couple of years about mm-hmm. about the, the the negative impact of that, like you like you spoke on. So I think it's yeah, you're you're totally right that it's a very broad thing, um, and something that we should all be paying attention to.
0: Don't want only people with that already have power to be
2: making mm-hmm. decisions for us. Yeah. Just one thing I wanted to note. Uh, you mentioned like a judge as a potentially like high income spouse that would enable uh in the state of oregon we also recently tried to increase judicial pay and have it (laughs) and keep losing uh judges back to private practice because and like this is not to say that you know somebody who is a judge is automatically going to be A great arbiter of uh, all sorts of social justice issues. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if this is the system we have all agreed to, we need to staff it. Yeah.
0: Well, and we certainly don't only want independently wealthy people in those roles. That would be bad.
1: I don't know the details off the top of my head, but I know that lawyers I follow on Twitter have been talking about the lack of public defenders, that there's not enough funding and way, way too many cases and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, f- getting money to the right places, especially in talking about all this kind of campaign finance stuff where there's like hundreds of thousands of dollars floating around, um, you know, even with single donations sometimes um, or more than that, right? We talked about millions uh, and then, you know, the state can't, the state county, et cetera, can't fund the systems that are in place to you know, ostensibly protect people, right? We have, um, criticisms of the justice system, but it is a system in place. And as Thursday mentioned, we should staff it or, um, tear it down.
0: We should at least not only staff the state's side
1: <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> right. at, at minimum, we should at least also do the
2: defense side. <laughs> Oh, we're not staffing either side at this point. Yeah, uh, Mike Schmidt has an editorial in today's Oregonian that, you know, 20 years ago, I think there was, you know, 100 and plus people working in the prosecutor's office, and now they're down under 70 and can't recruit anybody. Wow. I'm not a big fan of any district attorney's office. Um
0: I'm yeah, I'm kind of thinking, are we defunding
2: the, the prosecutors? Maybe that's <laughs> good. <laughs> sorry. But effectively, yes. We're defunding prosecutors and public defenders and all these other, you know, support systems while funding the police. I, I don't know that
0: I would call a prosecutor a support system just just from my <laughs> own perspective. Yes. <laughs>
2: I I'm sorry that I um I was more thinking public defense <laughs> as a support system. Yeah. But yeah, like All of these other parts of the government, um, we are defunding in favor of funding the police. Mm -hmm. You cut the police's Mm -hmm. budget, even a few million dollars, and suddenly (laughs) you might actually be able to staff some of these other offices.
0: If, say, a candidate didn't sign on and a PAC was just, like, running a campaign for a candidate, would they not have the same... Would they have pack rules or is there a limit to like how much they can do for a for a candidate before they
2: become a campaign? As far as my understanding goes, they'd still just be a pack. If the candidate isn't formally running, also, like if they're a write in mm-hmm. candidate, or if it's one of those draft so and so campaigns or something like yeah. that that would definitely be okay for it to be a pack if they're not coordinating, so... Like, what are the weird tools people can use right now? That's sort of where I'm thinking. So the rules that govern everything about all of this, there's the actual written laws that are, have either been passed through the state legislature or have been ballot measures and voted on by uh, voters in the state, you know, um, approved of, and those rules... Are often, you know, very opaque and difficult to understand. But you can get copies of them off of the state website and everything like that. Then there's case law. And a big chunk of this is case law, which means that it's, you know, any of the edge cases or the nuances of what's going on, somebody who has felt it necessary to take it to court, the judge then decides, you know, this is legal, this is not legal. And then that can be appealed, it can be taken up to an appellate court, the Oregon Supreme Court, whoever has jurisdiction, and they can reverse it, they can agree with it. But if we take a look at campaign finance reform here in Oregon, we actually have kind of a really good example. Um, so, In 1997, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled that uh, campaign donation limits are prohibited by the Oregon state constitution because they're considered free speech. That's case law that established that those limits were non-existent. Mm. It wasn't the the state legislature that decided that. Mm. And then in 2006, voters approved ballot measure 47, which would re- would have revised campaign finance laws, but they didn't change the state constitution. So in 2012, that ballot measure that would have changed the campaign finance laws was declared unconstitutional by the Oregon Supreme Court. So this case mm. law is what's really determining a lot of what's going on. And figuring out what the case law is means reading through a bunch of judicial opinions and then being like, so this circumstance that is different in these ways from what they've already decided means that they would probably say something? But it's not like Mm -hmm. a easy, this is illegal, this is not illegal sort of situation. And yeah, so we have like all of these different layers and like changing the Oregon Constitution is necessary to get the Oregon Supreme Court to agree that something works some way or another. But also there are some circumstances in which say we changed the Oregon state constitution in a way that violated the U.S. national constitution, it could go even further. Like, this system, using the word system, may be overly generous.
0: (laughs) One form of, like, authority and power is, like, being like, I know how this works and you don't know and it's too complicated for you. And, that this is a really good example of that where someone can be like, well, I actually don't worry. I, I actually know how this works. I've figured it out. Your little complaint is nonsense and I'm going to use a lot of legalese and that whether or not they're correct, that is already doing something and um, preventing challenges to their authority by just knowing the words and making the system seem overly complex and then being an insider and you being an outsider to it this is a really good example of that happening because we're trying to work through this you think about it all the time and there's still like so many places where you're like oh it's messy mm-hmm. it's confusing and so these lobbyists can be like oh, well, and kind of smooth things out through their marketing, through whatever makes it into the local media in the story. And like, yeah, sure, they might pay a couple hundred dollars here and there, but what's important is like where they they lose like their legitimacy and it's really hard to even know, <laughs> like for the public.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's there's really a two-tiered system here. Like if you have the money to throw at lawyers – who are willing to parse the situation, argue in front of a judge, all of that, most of the time, you get to play by a different set of rules. Like, one of the few times we've seen that not hold true is with Kristoff's attempt to get on the ballot.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: mm-hmm. it was a closer thing than it should have been. Like, a lot of. <laughs> okay. I read, you know, judicial opinions for fun. Obviously, (laughs) I'm going to have really specific opinions. But the fact that not only it went to the Oregon Supreme Court, but that some parts of the discussion were based on another Supreme Court decision back in the 70s, whether somebody's address between two counties within Oregon was the closest case law they could come up with. It really came close to Christoph's eligibility being decided on the basis of one state representative's eligibility decades ago.
0: Mm -hmm. And Christoph had a lot of money in his campaign coffers Mm -hmm. to find little, little things like that, that someone else would not have. He had a lot of out of state funding.
2: Yeah, if you look at like the media coverage of once uh, the Secretary of State started the disqualification process, like that decision showed up in a lot of media very quickly, which means... Somebody already had that press release ready to go. Hmm.
1: Talking about these um uh, specifically about reporting violations and and putting in complaints that's also an interesting angle because um you know if there's not an opposition that is familiar with these systems then you know there would be no one to complain and it sounds like you know they have occasional reporting and parsing and stuff but I don't it doesn't seem like a lot of like you know these campaign finance Issues come up through that what you've at least told us here today, and what I've heard before is like it's usually a lawyer associated with the campaign or some someone else that's like got um some sort of reason to oppose what's going on will use it as a way you know politically speaking to prevent somebody from doing something or at least slow them down or whatever, so yeah, like even getting access to that kind of power is really significant um it's It's interesting to think about you know there's so many things that are going on that just don't face any opposition, right? Even there are some elections, Mm -hmm. right, that don't, that just have one person running. Um, Mm -hmm. And not, again, a lack of awareness combined with a lack of access um, seems like a a pretty big deal. And I'm really glad, Thursday, that you're working on this stuff. While I'm talking about that, let me make the pitch. Um, pdx.vote is Thursday's site. It's incredibly informative. I read um, uh, your... uh, I think it was like State of the Ballot or something like that, that came out a little bit maybe a couple days ago. Or, and it's just like incredibly detailed, really informative. Um, there's also a way to um, fund the site. You can donate or do recurring donations. You should totally do that. Um, and a fund Thursday's project. And speaking of disclosure, Thursday also has um, really detailed disclosure, um, information about money coming in, money going out, um, which you know, we appreciate and um, really grateful for Thursday's work. So go sign up pdx.vote.
2: Thank you so much. I, I disclose everything. I disclose everything <laughs> I don't even want to know.
1: <laughs> I love it. I'm, um. I'm big on like overpublishing. Well, clearly. Um, so yeah, I put out so much stuff that I just like, I know pe- sometimes people are awash in it or like no- nothing gets yeah. really noticed because there's so much of it. So I appreciate putting out a lot of stuff.
0: Josh is the one that made us do an episode about why we're doing what we're doing. I
2: was like, no one cares. <laughs> I mean, I've I've been splitting some of that stuff off, at least, and putting it on like my personal site, just not to overwhelm people. <laughs> But no, like <laughs> I I accidentally wrote like two thousand words on why I felt this was important. So I'm I'm right there too. We love it. You two are kindred spirits on that for one. For sure,
1: for sure. Thursday was there anything we didn't cover or things that like you've been thinking about? Do you wanna just riff for a while about things you hate?
2: I was gonna say I wanna riff about why I hate Orstar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Let's yeah, let's go. do
2: it. Obviously I spend too much time on that site to begin with. Um
1: and, and just to go into detail, because I don't remember if we did, or stars um, where you can look up the campaign finance transactions, the information about the different entities, all that kind of stuff is all stored in the system. And and like Thursday mentioned before, it was built, um, what, 15, 17 years ago, and it's like very slow and terrible.
2: It, it is so slow. It is so <laughs> terrible. Um, I think I mentioned already, you can't have multiple tabs open with it. It doesn't correlate information between certain topics. So candidate information and committee information are kind of separate. So um, it's hard to sort of trace things throughout. Their maintenance periods it's probably more of a me problem, but I do research and find that they're in the middle of a maintenance period because I'm up at like 4am looking at somebody's uh, campaign disclosures. Um, And that's apparently the time they love to do uh, maintenance, but it's, it's so frequent, like so many other things that I use. Yeah. They still have their maintenance periods, but it's not, constant it's a few times a quarter maybe but on top of that like if we make any changes to how we handle campaign finance reform statewide if say we add a public option this tool will not serve those needs we're almost guaranteed to have to build something new from the ground up anyhow So on top of it being outdated, it's not really easy to build on top of. I'll also note that it's an internally developed tool at the Secretary of State's office, which means that it's much harder to understand how it's secured. It's much harder to evaluate any potential leaks of information. And there have been leaks of information, um, stuff like personal addresses and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things that could be done to sort of update it, and there are some projects, not by the government, but by other organizations. (laughs) There's a site called uh, portlandrecord.com, which has sort of built their own little interface on top of it called Campaign Funderator. And they produce nice, neat little lists of who's donated to a given campaign, who's doing the top donations, those sorts of things. For anybody who has worked in software development, if you go <laughs> on GitHub, which is where a lot of people post open source projects, there's multiple pages of just people who have built different scrapers to get different information out of the site over the years.
1: I have looked at this list and I have used some of these projects.
2: Right. Like it shouldn't be that hard to get information that is not just a public record, but directly impacts our ability to evaluate these elections to be sure that they are at least meeting these very low levels of compliance. So, yes, I would love a more modern system, not just, you know, because (laughs) I spend so much time with this (laughs) bunker, but also because it would make it much easier to even tell what kind of violations might be being missed by the Secretary of State. It'd be much easier to tell patterns in how money is being used and if there are ways to make public election uh, funds more useful for people. Um, Like, There's so many different ways that it could be improved, but almost all of them require basically starting from the ground up from what I can mm-hmm. gather. <laughs> like they don't, they don't just let you poke around the code for uh, <laughs> yeah. campaign finance tracking, but. <laughs>
0: and I think about, you know, a business, say if they were offering a software tool, mm-hmm. they at least have the pressure of customers that they have to sell to coming back to them being like, hey, this isn't usable. Maybe it's not accessible or something like that it's like the only mechanism for actually affecting the usability of a tool like this is like lawsuits or something like if it technically violates the letter of the law and a lot of things can be technically can technically function Mm. without really functioning for people um very well aware of that and there's no there's no uh there's not really a built-in incentive for the people maintaining it to serve the end user. Exactly. They just have to want to, I guess. Right.
2: Like the main reason OrStar exists at all is because legislators wanted an easier way to submit this paperwork that they had. They were already doing it electronically, but not not in a way that was efficient for a campaign. So mm-hmm since i don't see a lot of campaigns uh advocating for changing the system i can't Mm -hmm. imagine it changing anytime soon
0: yeah and that's interesting too that you brought that up because i was imagining the end user as being the public or uh media and no, not really. The, it sounds like the primary end user was actually campaigns themselves, which have completely different incentives for what you would want to optimize the mm-hmm. system to do. Almost, almost opposite.
1: That'd be an interesting question to ask. I wonder if the secretary of state would let us know, like, if there's like a percentage of people using the system, like what percentage is like randos like us and what percentage like, um, people signing in to, to do campaign finance stuff. At least stuff like submitting
0: versus viewing or something like that.
2: Yeah, I'd be yeah. honestly surprised if there's a robust analytics system <laughs> or logging system. Because again, honestly, who would care? Most of the most yeah. of the good, at least out-of-the-box systems, post date the development of Orstar.
0: And and again, like a business has yeah. a role because they're trying to optimize usage or something like that. There's somebody whose role it is to actually care mm. about that and like work towards those outcomes. But unless you explicitly created that with a law, there's not, I can't really see a reason why they'd have an incentive to do that. Like who's gonna like sit through the quarterly report of usage of ORSTAR? Like nobody's charged with Mm -hmm. that um, as their reason for
2: being. Yep. It comes down to, everything's legal until somebody complains?
0: does not seem like a great system when, in order to make a complaint, you need a law degree, basically.
2: Yeah, it's a very flawed system, but I feel it's pretty consistent across all of our quote-unquote crimes in this mm-hmm. country, yeah. that everything's legal yeah. until someone complains and you run out of money for lawyers. That's the, the overall story, isn't it?